Hire FM 95.9. The Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Afropolitans, it's a Wednesday evening, which means it's time for the law report. My name is Kasi Tola, sitting in for Michael Motoning Bill today, who's unavailable. Of course, we do know that towards the end of the year, there will be some significant changes at the Constitutional Court. The Chief Justice, Mohung Mohung, will officially retire alongside two other justices. So it means that the judiciary is in for a very interesting year where we have to find the replacements, not just for those three, but also for two uh, judges who have retired in recent times. So it's going to be a very interesting process. So what we've done is that we've lined up a couple of guests over the next hour who are going to talk us through the process of what happens and how it happens and what we need to look out for. And that will be Lawson Naidu from CASAC, Megazeli Benjamin from Judges Matter, and also Nicole Fritz from Freedom Under Law. So if you have any particular views about who our next Chief Justice should be, should it be a woman, should we extend Mohoi Mohang's term if possible, do feel free to call us on 86 You can also tweet us at, at KFM 95.9. I'm also at, at Koruska Kaya, um, uh, available on Twitter. And if you have any particular law matters that you'd like us to deliberate on, you can even email us on maseho at kfm.co.za. After the short break, we're going to be talking all matters relating to judicial appointments with Lawson Naidu and Megazeli Benjamin. The Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Afropolitans, uh, those of you who do pay attention to matters relating to the administration of justice will probably know that towards the end of the year, the Chief Justice of the country, Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng, will officially retire. His official retirement date is the 1st of November 2021 because he has served a 12-year period at the Constitutional Court. He was appointed by the then President Jacob Zuma at the beginning of November 2009, and this simply means that we are now looking for a new Chief Justice. The interesting and very important part about his appointment of course is that back then there was indeed a deputy chief justice who was Dehang Moseneke and the president of the country still chose to appoint or at least nominate somebody else to fill the position of the Chief Justice. It wasn't a very normal process because we know that there was firstly an attempt by President Jacob Zuma and his Justice Minister at the time, Jeff Hatebe, to actually extend the term of the then Chief Justice Sandy Lengobo, which drew a lot of <laughs> flack from the other judges of the Constitutional Court and civil society in general. So it was a grudge um, that uh, I suppose it was perhaps an a, 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 a
a forced matter for President Jacob Zuma to then appoint Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng. It's been 12 years, well, almost 12 years, and now he has to vacate his seat. And of course, the big question is that what ought to happen next? Who should rise to that particular role? Now that we have an established precedent that says that the Deputy Chief Justice is not guaranteed that elevation, what should happen? So we're going to be speaking to people who are observing these particular matters quite keenly, and that is Lawson Naidu from the Council for the Advancement of the South Constitution and also Megazeli Benjamin, who represents Judges Matter. And I know Judges Matter are the people that always go to all these interviews and record it for all of us and enable us to actually see what happens in this process. So I'm going to start with Megazeli. Megazeli, good evening. Judges Matter is very, very keenly engaged and very interested in the process of judicial appointments. Talk us through what will be happening over the course of 2021, starting with the interviews that will be coming through in April. Uh, good evening, Kai, and good evening to the Kai FM listeners. Um, thank you very much for having us. Um, as I said, we um, have been um, observing the judges' interviews for some years now, um, and uh, this time around um, it will be the same. We will be attending um, the, the interviews. Um, they usually happen in mid-round. Um, but <clears throat> what we are looking, for, uh, looking at this year is that... Um, it will be a very big round, um, the biggest in years, uh, uh, because in the in the last two rounds, so so interviews happen every six months um, in April and October, um, but in 2020, obviously because of the pandemic and the lockdown, the interviews couldn't happen, and so um, in, in in this round they will basically be covering um, both sessions that was scheduled to happen last year but couldn't happen and so they will be interviewing about 80 candidates and they'll be trying to fill um, about 30 vacancies in the judiciary from the constitutional court all the way to um, the Supreme Court of Appeal and in the different high courts as well. Begazeli, you mentioned a very important thing that in the type of interviews that you're going to see, those 80, for example, with goings from the High Court to the Supreme Court of Appeal, the Electoral Court, and indeed the Constitutional Court. But I think for a lot of us, our only interaction with the justice system, I suppose fortuitously, is only ever going to happen at the lowest level of the justice system, this being the magistracy and perhaps for people who have particular disputes with their employers at the CCMA and the Labour Court, for example. And yet we never get to hear about the process relating to how people become a magistrate, for example, how a person becomes a commissioner at the CCMA. Why is there that distinction between the type of courts you referred to earlier and the ones where most of us, like you and I, are probably ever going to ever interact, which is the magistracy and even the, uh, the, the, the employment tribunals of, of various kinds? Um, I, I think coming from our perspective, it's not because we thought that the, the magistrate courts um, are less important, but it's just, just a question of capacity. Um, the, the higher courts were easier for us because we're a, a very small team, so um, it, it was relatively easier to observe the judges' interviews, which are much more compact. There are less candidates, there are less interviews happening. Um, but over the last year or so, um, we have been uh, now observing the magistrates' um, interviews. Um, and so we've 
just last week, actually, um, the magistrate commission was sitting in Pretoria to interview magistrates, and and that's also something that um, we've, we've we've had an, an interest uh, in the past, but now at least we are, we we have the opportunity to now observe, and uh, it's it's quite interesting actually to contrast the two processes. It happens almost the same way, but the magistrates commission we can say are actually they have a, a more um, stringent process. It, it's more straightforward. Um, they uh, sort of um, try to get the best candidates, although they don't get sometimes good candidates in which we are concerned about. But their process at least weeds out um, all of those we would not appoint as magistrates. And so we are uh, trying to observe that. But obviously, um, our, our for the last 10 years or so, we were not about it's also a decade now we've been focused on on on, on judges and so i think we we've, we've gotten some interesting insights from that process which we hope to also lend to the magistrates um interview process Lawson Naidu, I'd like to bring you into the conversation at this stage, and I suppose the same question to you. We know that the focus tends to be on who gets appointed, who gets interviewed for these high courts, but I think for a lot of people, our interaction with the justice system will never be at the constitutional court, unless there's someone like Trevor Manuel who can take a matter of defamation to the constitutional court, for example, unless you former President Jacob Zuma, who seems to seek to elevate all his matters to the constitutional court, regardless of the question of jurisdiction and merits. So why is there such a huge focus on just those particular appointment processes? And we hardly ever get to hear about what happens at the more ground level, at the magistracy, for example. Uh, thank you, Kaya. You know, look, I think that's a very good question. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, the magistrates' courts is where most people, as you say, interact with the justice system, uh, and uh, the uh, you know appointments to the to those courts are, are critically important for the administration of justice, for access to justice, and uh, for the, the the prism through which most people view the justice system in South Africa. So, yes, at a, at a at another level, yes, we like to focus on the higher courts, the constitutional court, the Supreme Court, and the high courts, uh, because that's where the sort of high-profile cases uh, in, in our country tend to, to land up, the cases, as you say, involving former President Zuma, the public protector, uh, various government departments, and so on, uh, end up. So, we, you know, we're interested in that, but, uh, you know, one needs to look at the uh, administration of justice as a whole, Look at the whole of the court structure, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, the, the Magistrates Commission and the process of appointing magistrates is getting a lot more attention now. And I think it needs a sharper focus because there have been, you know, considerable problems within the magistracy uh, over the years. Issues of uh, complaints against magistrates not being uh, dealt with, uh, you know, uh, properly, uh, and so on. So I think that greater attention at that level is is, is critical. Uh, you know, for the health of our judiciary as a whole. I, I think another key question that people tend to ask is, do we actually even have enough individuals that are, you know, sufficiently well-versed in how the legal system works in its different forms for enough people to then put their hands up? Or do we end up with the situation where we quite simply do not have enough people that are good enough to be considered as magistrates and to be good enough to be appointed as magistrates? And of course, if you can't people find people at the magistrate level, you're going to see that knock-on effect even at the higher courts where simply there is the reality that we don't have enough candidates of a particular caliber to say, look, we've got a strong enough um, you know, interview system, we've got a strong enough justice system, we've got enough people that are willing to put their hands up. What is the situation in relation to the magistracy, for example? Uh, 
Uh, well, look, uh, Mbex is probably in a better position to answer this than I am, but let me just uh, give my uh, my comments uh, to start with. Look, I, I, I think we do have enough people uh, across the breadth of the country to, to fill the, uh, the positions that exist both within the magistracy as well as within the higher courts. I think the, the key issue is around uh, the process of appointment, uh, how those interviews are conducted, and what the criteria for appointment is, and you know, this is something we might come back to later in the conversation, Kaya. Uh, but I think that's one of the key issues: is we don't have clear uh, guidelines or criteria for appointment uh, to, to a judicial office, and you know that that becomes a bit of a problem in the interview process because you tend to find that different uh, members of the interviewing panel will focus on different areas of expertise or experience some of which may, may not actually be relevant to uh, the person carrying out their duties as a, as a judicial officer. So I think there are, there are a number of uh, issues that have constrained the number of people, certainly in recent years, people who are willing to put their names forward for uh, appointment to the higher courts. I think it's very pleasing to see that this, in this round, this very large round of interviews, uh, where 80 candidates are, uh, are going to be interviewed, that we've seen a, a large number of what I would say, uh, on balance, are of, of a very high caliber, uh, probably of a higher caliber than we've seen in recent years. So that's certainly an encouraging sign. Begazeli, the question of whether we have enough individuals within the judicial system for them to raise their hands up, are we really finding the cream of the crop, or does it become a matter of, look, here's a vacancy, and if only Kai and Begazeli are available to be interviewed, well, we're just going to find the best from the two of them, even if they're not necessarily the ideal candidates. How is the situation at the magistracy level? Yeah, I, I think Lawson um, has partially answered the question. So, um, in terms of talent, I, I don't think we are lacking much. Uh, well, we're not, we're not lacking talent out there, but the problem that we have observed is that not enough people are coming forward, for example, to to um, raise their hand to be magistrates. And we actually, that's where we need high level of expertise, uh, people who, who know criminal law quite well, who know civil law and family law quite well. We need them in those courts because, as you said, that's where most people interact with, with the justice system. And so we would hope that more people would step forward because what we've, what we've seen is, um, for example, the quite a number of, of prosecutors who, who come forward. Some of them have been in the prosecution service for a number of years and they're quite well versed in criminal law. But in, in, in when it comes to, for example, issues of civil law and, and of family law, they might not be so um, um, well versed on. And so we we need more well-rounded practitioners who come who could come forward um, uh, and uh, to become magistrates. And what is also encouraging to us is that the magistrates commission takes their um, responsibility quite seriously, and so they are willing to not appoint people in, in certain circumstances where they can't find a suitable candidate. But the quality of the candidates can do with some improvement um, in terms of um, people who come forward to interview at the Massachusetts Commission. Ambegazel, you speak about the quality of the candidates, and I think Lawson touched on this earlier on. The issue here seems to be that there isn't any set criterion that says, look, once a person has, I don't know, uh, participated in so many cases as an advocate or as a senior counsel and won so many cases and been able to argue in front of these particular type of courts, then that person is, you know, worthy of being interviewed. Should there be a sort of a more streamlined criteria that says, look, after this particular point in time, a person 
person can put their hands up rather than simply having everybody who says, well, I might be interested in this. Let me just take my chances. And guess what? I may be lucky that no one else shows up, which means that I may just be the person that that, that gets appointed. What criteria should we have and what, what should we be looking into before saying that for anyone who really wants to be considered seriously, this is what they need to have as a background, for example? Yeah, we, we absolutely do need a, a, a criteria, especially when it comes to um, the, the appointment of judges. Um, we've seen in the in the Judicial Service Commission, for example, that in the application forms they require you to state your experience and whatever. But in the in the actual interviews, those issues are, are, are not interrogated for some candidates. They they simply never asked about um, when are you. Uh, with how long have you been practicing in a particular area and what kind of expertise have you developed in that particular area and, and whether that ex- expertise and experience can be translated to other areas of work because judges um, deal with all kinds of work and so you are expected to know as much tax law as you do criminal law as you do um, patents, for example. So, so those, those kinds of things are not interrogated enough at the, judici- at, 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 the, at the judges' interviews, and that's a concern for us. We've been raising it for a number of years now. Uh, but when it comes to the magistracy, um, in, in contrast, they seem to have a, 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 a more focused criteria, um, which um, just recently the Magistrates Commission has shared um, publicly with us, where they look at the number, your, your fitness, how long have you been practicing as a, as a legal practitioner, um, which areas of work have you been focusing on, and um, how long have, have you had court experience, for example. Those are crucial questions. Um, for example, if, even if you want to be the head of the magistrate's office, they ask you whether you have leadership skills, whether you have administrative skills to be able to administer a court. Those are crucial questions that are, that are uh, that go to the fitness of someone to hold that particular office as a magistrate or as a as a head of a of, of an uh, of a, an office somewhere. And and we wish that that kind of thing can also tra- uh, filter through to the judicial service commission where they they would in- interrogate uh, candidates on a, on a set criteria. Um, what we would perhaps uh, recommend for the magistrate commission is for them to to be more clearer about when you've now asked people these questions, how do you weigh them? And how do you then decide who, who become, who is a strong candidate between two um, nearly um, equally qualified candidates? So that's something that we would hope that they would improve in their, in their uh, process going forward. Lawson, is CASAC pursuing any of these avenues of trying to get at least the magistracy appointment process to be a bit more robust and a bit more transparent and perhaps a bit more consistent? Because I think, you know, we do realize that historically there's been some type of appointments that in hindsight somebody looks back and says, actually, this probably wouldn't, was not desirable. What is CASAC doing in relation to that? Well, uh, in relation to the, magi- uh, the magistracy, uh, it's not been an area of our focus, uh, Kaya, to be honest. It's the work that uh, uh, Judges Matter has done uh, some work on. Our focus has, as, as I said earlier, been largely on the, on the higher court. And we have engaged in the, uh, in the debate around uh, criteria for, uh, for appointment of judges to the higher courts. And I think, you know, this is something that we see across the board, not just with the appointments to judicial office, but if we look, for example, at appointment processes that are conducted by parliament, they tend to be very, very subjective. There's no objective criteria 
for, you know, what qualifies someone to be a public protector or a commissioner at the Human Rights Commission or the Commission for Gender Equality. Uh, you know, and it's in a similar way, the JSV operates and, uh, you know, it becomes very subjective. The questions are, don't follow a set pattern. So how do you measure one candidate against another? Those, I think, are deficiencies in the system uh, that we see. There is a process towards moving, uh, of moving towards top some sort of clarity around uh, criteria for appointments to the higher courts, but they need to be formalized uh, so that, you know, there's a clear set of criteria in which people are judged. And I think if, if that uh, set of criteria were to be put in place, it might well encourage people who feel that they are properly qualified to come forward and, 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 uh, and stand for, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to stand up to public scrutiny in those interviews. And, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 no easy thing to go and face a 23-person uh, interview panel at the uh, Judicial Service Commission for a position on on the High Court or the SDA or the Concord. So it's quite a daunting task uh, yeah. to you know to confront those people. Okay, thank you, Lawson. Uh, we're going to take a short break, Afropolitans, and thereafter we're going to carry on looking at the appointment processes, particularly in the higher courts and more importantly at the Constitutional Court. I'm still going to be speaking to Megazeli Benjamin from Judges Matter, Lawson Nairu from Kassak, and we're also going to be joined by Nicole Fritz from Freedom and the Law. The Law Reports with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back, Afropolitans. We are talking about processes relating to how judges and magistrates are appointed. We've been speaking earlier on with Megazeli Benjamin from Judges Matter and also Lawson Naidu from CASAC just to get some insights into how these processes work. Soon enough, we will be joined by Nicole Fritz, who represents Freedom Under Law. Now, before the break, um, Megazeli and Lawson gave us some particular insights into what happens, particularly at your magistracy process. And I think one of the key issues that emanates is the question of what really ought to be the criteria for people being appointed to those particular positions. Now, of course, I think the issue of the criteria of appointment isn't unique to just a magistrates itself because even at the higher courts you then have to struggle to find exactly what is the objective criteria that people need to sort of really um, measure up to before they get either uh, nominated or even get interviewed. Lawson, we've seen historically when people get uh, uh, interviewed for the high court for example there's usually a lot of people that put up their hands and they all have diverse areas of expertise and experience. You may find somebody who's been a senior counsel for a very long time putting their hand up somebody who's been probably acting in their capacity as a judge president, for example, sorry, acting as a judge, for example, putting their hands up and other people who are just coming straight from practice. It seems that it's literally just a lottery where you look at the appointment process and then you say, hey, I'll take my chances here. Should there be perhaps some sort of more streamlined criteria, even for people in the higher courts, particularly because of obviously the massive public interests associated, who gets elevated into a high court where a lot of matters do tend to really be finalized? No, absolutely. I mean, there needs to be more criteria and, you know, uh, and clearer criteria that is laid out as to what is expected of people occupying judicial office in these higher courts. Uh, and when it comes to issues, of, for example, around the high court, and so certainly, you know, if you look at the uh, the busier high court, uh, the Gauteng Division, Western Cape Division, Eastern Cape Division, you, you know, you need to have a, a spread of expertise on those courts, uh, as Mbex explained earlier, covering a range of legal disciplines. So you don't have j- just have people who are familiar with uh, 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 with criminal law or with uh, 
you know, law of contracts and commercial law, but you have a, a broad spectrum of, of expertise on the bench so that whatever matter comes before, the, before those courts, the judge president has the opportunity of appointing judges who are skilled in that particular area of, of, uh, of law to, uh, to hear those cases. So it's those kind of factors that I think we need to build into the system to create a, a robust judiciary that's really able to tackle uh, the issues that come before the court. Afropolitans, we now are joined by Nicole Fritz, who is the CEO of Freedom Under Law, who also obviously you take a very keen interest in what happens within the judicial appointment processes. Nicole, just before you joined us, I was speaking to Lawson and Begazeli about the question of the criteria, particularly at your magistracy. But I think the issues around the criteria for people to be interviewed and indeed appointed is also equally important, particularly at the high court level, where obviously the bulk of the, you know, the, the judiciary tends to be located and where bulk of the matters that people want to get ventilated tend to be. In the opinion of freedom under law, should we be looking at perhaps trying to define at least in some broad terms what the criteria ought to be for people to either be entertained as candidates and even be interviewed? Hi, and good evening to all your listeners. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, we want to uh, judges uh, or candidates for appointment to the judiciary to embody those qualities um, that are required of them in the performance of their duties and that is independent mindedness and the ability to dispense uh, uh, justice without fear or favor um, without showing bias and I so in a sense it is the qualities uh, that are required of the office of a judge that are to be determinative um, of the qualities that we look for in those in those candidates. Um, so, in a sense, um, you know, the, the the office itself offers the definition of the, of those qualities that we want the candidates to embody. Nicole, earlier on, uh, Lawson was speaking about some of the issues that, you know, judges sort of need to, well, prospective judges, I suppose, need to be able to exhibit issues around uh, administrative skills, for example. And I suppose the question that a lot of listeners would have is to say, well, if a person is practicing as an attorney in private practice, uh, practicing as an advocate, for example, what could be the objective measure for assessing that person as administrative skills and administrative capacity, particularly when they may be a part of a bigger ecosystem, a bigger law firm, for example, where the administrative duties are distributed across different persons? How could you then objectively say, look, this person is very good in their capacity as a practitioner. They are good at arguing in front of a particular judge, but perhaps the administrative duties is where they fall short. Is there an objective measure for that? Well, I do think that there are factors that can be taken into account. You know, I, I think what we want to do is strike a balance. So I, I think if we're saying that, uh, you know, all candidates have to have demonstrated excellent administ- administrative skills, we are going to then um, prejudice those candidates who might be in, in smaller uh, firms or sole practitioners and, and in fact, um, ensure that there's a bias and, and uh, you know, perhaps not be... Um, as best places we should be to ensuring that our, our, our judiciary is representative of, of diversity, which obviously is a value that we want we want to have embraced and, and demonstrated. But I do think you know, so there are going to be a mix of skills that you want to your your different candidates to embody and to demonstrate, and they're not all going to equally embody you know those different skills um, all at the same level. But I think when it comes 
when we're talking about um, you know attorneys and and advocates, I mean, as you say, it's not necessary they perform in court, but but there will be um, you know attorneys um, and and advocates who will have led very detailed, complex matters in court, and that in itself, um, the the ability to litigate such matters um, or to to process. Uh, those types of uh, court cases, or uh, and, and even if they're matters that don't go to court, those involve incredibly complex administrative skills, um, and I think it's that involvement in those types of complex matters, um, whether it's actually in a court or it's an arbitration process, that I think can point um, on the part of, of those who have not yet served as judicial officers but have been attorneys and or advocates, that they have those types of administrative skills. But as I say, we're not going to require every um, candidate to necessarily have had that type of experience, and they might be able to demonstrate other qualities that we want to hold in the balance. Listen, the Judicial Services Commission is probably the one instrument that people sort of have a great awareness of. It is something that is sort of defined within the parameters of the Constitution of who ought to sit there and what their duties are. Can you just give us a brief summary of what exactly is the role of the JSC, particularly in relation to the question of appointments? Well, the, the Judicial Service Commission is, is the body that recommends uh, the judges for appointment to the uh, president. It's a body that comprises some 23 members, which includes uh, a range of politicians drawn from the uh, from Parliament, from both the National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces, uh, the Chief Justice, the President of the Supreme Court of Appeal, the Minister of Justice. Uh, the President has four nom- nominees that he can nominate to the Commission, and representatives of the legal profession as well as a legal academic. So it's a broad range of uh, expertise that sits around that table and uh, engages in uh, in these interviews. Uh, as Beck said earlier, there'll be a, uh, interviews for 80 candidates in April over a two-week period, and this body of people will sit there and pose questions to the candidate, uh, and uh, you know, make, ultimately will make recommendations for appointment. So it's a, it's a very powerful body, and it's a body that I think that you know has uh, has over the years proved its mettle. There have been times when uh, it has come in for some criticism that uh, uh, because of the number of politicians that serve on that committee, uh, the 10 members from parliament as well as the minister and perhaps some of the presidential uh, nominees have at times been uh, quite political uh, beings uh, and, and uh, you know, t- tend to take the, uh, the interviews in a particular direction that is not always helpful, does not always uh, uh, you know, point to the... Uh, uh, the kinds of skills and attributes, as Nicole has explained, that is required on the bench. But, uh, you know, it, it is an important body. It played a, a useful role. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, interviews for the, uh, that are conducted by the JSC are conducted in the glare of the public eye with organizations like Judges Matter making those, uh, that information publicly available means that there is a level of, of public scrutiny of this process which has to be welcomed. I mean, Begazeli, uh, 
In a follow-up to Lawson's comment there, the question of expertise that we raised earlier on, we were talking about the expertise of the people that, uh, you know, put their hands up to be interviewed and eventually for appointment. But I suppose the question of expertise is equally relevant for the people conducting the interviews because, as Lawson explained, it is really a motley crew of, you know, legal experts plus political players. And you might want to then ask the question of, well, do we not run the risk of, you know, packing it with the type of individuals who not only follow a party political mandate, for example, Example, but also quite simply, do not have the requisite expertise to be able to interview a person. Let's say they want, for example, to be a member of the court and they want to specialize in, you know, competition law, for example, which is probably one of the places where there are particular weaknesses. What should we make of the composition of the JC itself in relation to the expertise and the capacity to really substantively interrogate the candidates and ensure that the right ones emerge as judicial candidates? Well, if, if your question is whether or not the JSC commissioners to be trained, that should be trained on HR processes and what to look for in a particular candidate and for a particular court, I would absolutely say yes, they need that training. But in terms of um, how the, the commission was, was designed uh, by the uh, drafters of the constitution, it was designed to be both um, a legal process, so you, you find about half of the, of the JSC is made up of lawyers, uh, but half of it is, is made up of uh, politicians from par- parliament who are seen to be the people's representatives because it shouldn't only be lawyers and judges appointing judges. Um, it should be a different, um, different kinds of people with a diversity of experiences who would be able to assess um, a candidate's fitness for office um, for judicial office, not only as a lawyer, but also as someone who understands South Africa's democracy, who understands the role of the judiciary in wider society. And so that is something that we've seen, for example, some of the politicians um, tease out in their questioning. Um, in, in, the, in, the, in the past few years, we had the combination of, of Tandi Mudisa, the speaker, and Tawot Didiza when she was on the Judicial Service Commission. They used to focus quite heavily on the question of gender and whether or not candidates are sensitive to issues of gender as lawyers and as judges. And that is something that wasn't necessarily picked up by all the lawyers in the room. They, they would only assess the technical ability of whether or not you can sentence someone for rape, but without necessarily assessing the gender dynamics of, 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 of issues such as rape. And so you, the, the, the value of having a diversity of experience is that you, you, you test a candidate on a wider um, variety of issues than simply simply the law, and 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 that is something I think that um, we should value in, in in terms of our process. But of course, um, there are improvements that could be made. Um, for example, and, and simply the issue of of the criteria, which will also influence the type of questions that a candidate is asked. Nicole, Megazini mentions the fact that, you know, the composition of the JSE is sort of a balance between the politicians and the lawyers. But I do seem to recall that even the lawyers themselves, you don't just show up and say, I want to be a member of the JSE, but some of them are actually then appointed by the president, for example, or through some political party line. So it means that if somebody objectively views those particular lawyers that are then put to the JSE on the whims or at least, you know, the preferences of a particular president, what do they represent primarily? The judicial interest, the legal interest, the public interest, or the political interest? You know, I, I'm sure the process um, could be improved, but I think by and large we've actually got a, a pretty good process 
for for appointments of judge uh, judges. Um, you know, as has been explained, there there is a you know combination, uh, a wide representation of the legal profession. There are academics, um, attorneys, um, advocates, judges represented. I think you know. The candidates are being tested and um, scrutinized for their um, knowledge of the law, uh, their ability to apply it, um, and and that it's not, um, you know, to be uh, uh, to be regretted um, that there are political representatives and they are ruled um, in respect of issues that are of concern to you know the average person in the street. And um, this is one of the three primary branches of our government. And the idea that the persons appointed to our bench should be responsive, should be able to, to give um, fluid and um, considered uh, answers to, to those types of concerns, I think is, is um, uh, you know, for the good of, of the judiciary and the confidence that the public has in them. Uh, and so, you know, whatever, whoever is responsible for the, for the nomination of the candidate, I think once they have been through that process, uh, it would be very hard to say that that at, at this at point in time that that person is of you know a, a kind of political um, plant um, or, or tool. Um, and and so you know I, I think the the appointment process that we've seen thus far is not one that raises enormous problems um, or, or um, you know prejudices the the confidence that the public can have in the administration of the judiciary. Lawson, do we have the right balance in the composition of the JSC itself? Look, I mean, I think, you know, uh, one would say uh, that we do. Uh, you know, it, it is a structure that, uh, you know, as Nicola said, can be improved, uh, possibly over time. But it, it's, it's, it's done its job pretty well. We've, we've had a very strong uh, judiciary in South Africa, uh, uh, you know, in recent times. Uh, the judiciary has withstood intense political pressure uh, in, in recent times. There were, you know, a number of very high-profile um, political, in inverted commas, cases that has come, have come before the courts, including the highest courts in the country. And uh, they've shown their mettle to be able to apply the law without fear or favor. So I think it's to the credit of the JSB that we have such a strong uh, 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 bench in South Africa across, across our courts. And, uh, you know, so uh, one is reluctant to tamper with something that by and large seems to be working. Now, that's a very important consideration because I think for a lot of people that sort of want to start engaging with these processes, the awareness or the understanding of how people end up being, you know, sitting amongst those 23 is an important one. But I think, Begazili, the one interesting element of it is that we've saw, we've seen in previous instances where particularly the Judge President or the President of the Supreme Court of Appeal had to be recused from the interviews themselves. How does the JSC actually deal with the type of tensions that emerge where perhaps a prospective candidate has a particular history directly or indirectly with one of the interviewees and then sort of takes the view that actually it would not be proper for that particular interviewer to sit in that particular process? Um, I, 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 to my recollection, there has been sort of one incident where one of the commissioners uh, set out uh, in an interview, or they recused themselves from an interview because of personal um, issues with a particular candidate, uh, but from 
generally a number of interviews, what usually happens is that the commissioner who has a personal relationship, for example, with the candidates, or they've worked with them in the past, or they've known them for some time, that commissioner declares on record that they have a relationship with that particular person so that all of us are aware that when they are asking that person questions, they, we, they, we have that relationship in mind. And um, an example I can make is when um, uh, Chief Justice Mokweng was interviewing um, uh, Judge Zondo for his current position as Deputy Chief Justice. He declared that they've known each other since university and they've been friends since. And so um, that, is, that is, I think, the practice of the JSC. Um, but, of course, there was one incident. I, I think it, was, it involved uh, 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 President um, Maya uh, and w- with uh, an, another uh, candidate, because I think um, Judge Catrice Dillon, um, when she had to sit it out because of uh, previous um, um, personal issues that had happened in the past. But I don't think it's a, it's a common practice at all. All right, Afropolitans, after the break, we're going to be focusing on the looming replacements at the Constitutional Court. We know that the Chief Justice is retiring alongside two other justices in November, but even before then, there's already two vacancies, and now we need to know what happens next. We're going to take a short break, and then we carry on with this critical question on judicial appointments. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back, Afrobaltans. My name is Kaya Sitole, sitting in for Michael Motsoning Bill today. We are actually speaking about the processes relating to the judicial appointments. We have on the line Nicole Fritz from Freedom Under Law, Lawson Naidu from Kasek, and Begazeli Benjamin from Judges Matter. Nicole, just before we let you go, this year is probably one of the most critical ones for the judiciary and I suppose its immediate and you know medium-term future. Not only do we have to replace two justices who have retired in the past, but there's also three justices who will be vacating their seats at the end of October, including the Chief Justice himself. And I think, obviously, what we've seen this week is that the JSC has said that in their April interviews, they're going to be interviewing for the current vacancies. And then, of course, we assume that in their October sittings, they'll then be looking at the question of who are the three additional ones, but also, importantly, who the new Chief Justice of the country ought to be. What will freedom under law be sort of be observing in relation to those processes as they, unroll, uh, as they, as they emerge this year? Right, so, I mean, you know, the Constitutional Court, obviously the highest court in the land. We want, um, we want, you know, candidates to the court to represent uh, the, the values um, and embody the values that uh, we want from a, from a judiciary. Um, but what's interesting there is that, you know, the Constitutional Court is a court that sits on bank. Um, and so, you know, you have at least um, eight judges hearing hearing an issue, um, and the idea is that there is, you know, should be a, a, a richness um, of of that diversity of views. Um, you know, there's what has seemed to happen over the last few years is that the idea is that the the constitutional court represents the sort of final point, the apex point of a judge's career. So those appointed to the Constitutional Court have generally served as judges and on different benches. But the Constitutional Court, in fact, I mean, the Constitution itself, in fact, says that, um, you know, at least four uh, judges to the Constitutional Court um, uh, must be judges, suggesting that, in fact, um, those those others appointed to the Constitutional Court need not have served as judges before. Um, and, you know, there's a debate to be had as to whether we should be um, seeking um, uh, 
you know, contributions to the constitutional court um, from other uh, legal sectors, um, from academia, for instance, um, uh, you know, to, to allow for that richness. But certainly, I mean, at this point, what we want to see is that the, 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 the process of appointment um, is, you know, rigorously upheld. Um, the it, it for the chief justice uh, that is a candidate that is appointed by the president um, after consultation with the political parties in the national assembly and with the JSC. Um, we'll see. Um, you know, generally the the practice has been to just nominate uh, over the last couple of years to nominate a single candidate and for that candidate then to be interviewed by by the JSC. But there's nothing to stop the, the president to, from being actually more transparent and saying, here are the candidates he's considering. Um, and and to, you know to to make that not, uh, information available to the political parties and to the JSC, um, and to consult and to perhaps have a you know a, a, more interviews by the JSC of those uh, potential candidates before a decision is made. Um, and that perhaps is a is a richer, more robust process for the appointment of our our next chief justice. Thank you, Nicole. We'll let you go at this stage. Mbegazeli, I mean, at this stage, the laws of the land say that 11 justices must serve as permanent members of the Constitutional Court bench. But obviously, a lot of people have highlighted in the past that, you know, perhaps if there were more justices there, there'd be a much faster turnaround process in relation to the cases that they hear. Is 11 still an appropriate number for where we are as a country? Um Look, there are lots of debates, um, particularly because the the, the the constitutional court is now the apex court, so all matters are now coming to it. Um, but um, 11 is, is not a golden number. We can increase it, but the question is how many is enough? At the SCA, for example, with a court that deals with all cases, there are about 25 judges. So do we also want 25 for the constitutional court or do we want less? I think the, 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 the real, real um, uh, issue I have with, with this is that the constitutional court is not really um, utilizing its, its power of uh, sending cases to the SCA and saying, look, this is the final um, uh, port. Um, I think that should be more robust. The SCA should, I mean, the Concord should be more clearer as to which cases can actually go to it. And perhaps there are questions on, on whether or not um, it should sit uh, um, in, in, in bank, as Nicole said, in, in like all 11 members or all, a minimum of eight sitting in all cases. Uh, they, it's tremendous value in that, but um, there should be questions of whether or not um, that is still feasible considering the number of cases uh, that it now receives. But of course, the, the debate is, is still ongoing and it's only been a, a few years. Um, I think we can wait a little bit more just to see how the, these new changes with the um, Constitutional Court hearing all manner of cases, uh, how, that, how that pans out. But for now, there are a, a few areas of concern, but um, we, we can wait it out a little bit more to see. Lawson, the role of the Chief Justice is a remarkably important one. In fact, even the role of the Deputy Chief Justice is important given the fact that they tend to chair the Judicial Conduct Committee, for example. And yet it appears that when we talk about how people get appointed to the bench, there is a very thorough, robust process where people put their hands up and there's interviews and their CVs are vetted. But when it comes to the appointment of the Chief Justice, it just suddenly seems like a president can sit and pick a name and say, look at this person and give me reasons why I 
should not appoint them. Should there be perhaps a much greater scrutiny or at least a much more stringent process around the person who gets appointed to be Chief Justice and even indeed Deputy Chief Justice, given the administrative burden associated with the job? Uh, I couldn't agree more, Kaya. I think that there needs to be a much more open, transparent and competitive process uh, for the, the head of the judiciary, which is what the Chief Justice is. And it's not someone who just sits there as the, the head of the Constitutional Court, but that person is also the head of the Office of the Chief Justice, which is a, effectively a government department that has now been established outside of the uh, Department of Justice and Constitutional Development to oversee the administration of the court. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a much bigger job than just being a judge. It's responsible for the administration of, of the court system. Uh, so we need a, a much more uh, open and competitive process. And, you know, this, this notion of the, you know, prerogative of the president making appointments of the chief justice and the deputy chief justice, you know, uh, calls into, you know, into mind the issue of, uh, you know, the constitutional provision that the president appoints the, uh, the head of the National Prosecuting Authority, the NDPP. And we saw, um, uh, most recently the president, um, taking a different approach and, and appointing an independent panel to advise him on the uh, uh, person to be, uh, to be appointed as the National Director of Public Prosecution. So I think, uh, you know, a, a process akin to that, uh, you know, getting independent advice, uh, pr- uh, you know, preparing a shortlist of candidates to the president and saying, well, we think you should consider from amongst these three or five people who you want, who you want to appoint as the chief justice. And then the president referring some or all of those names to the JSE, uh, you know, to, to advise him in terms of the constitution. So I think, you know, it, it would be, it would be, uh, uh, encouraging if we saw that that kind of uh, open-mindedness from the president in regards to this very critical appointment that comes up at the end of the year. And, you know, as you said, Kai, you know, in the course of 2021, we will have changed uh, five of the 11 judges on the Constitutional Court. That's almost half of that court. So this court is going to go through a significant transformation uh, in a very short space of time with five new people coming onto the onto that court so this is an inc- incredibly important process and the and the selection of the chief justice is obviously uh, critical within that whole context Megazeli, i mean uh, lawson highlights the fact that you know the judiciary is probably undergoing its most Momentous transformation where essentially from the nine justices that are sitting today, uh, three of them will not be there. So by the time we have this conversation sometime next year, five of the nine judges of the court will be brand new. And that is essentially the majority of the court. The question around institutional memory, do we have perhaps a much more better managed, if you want to call it, transition process, which ensures that at no point in time do we turn around and say, wait, hold on, the majority of the Concord judges are people who've just taken up the job. Is this process staggered in a way that enables that continuity, or is it just a matter of, well, the president decided this is who should be appointed at this point in time, the JC said, we're only available to do interviews at this particular date, so so be it? Uh, Yeah, well, before I, I go directly to your question, but you raised an important issue about um, us having a conversation about these appointments. Um, we are not, as South Africans, having enough um, of this conversation about the importance of, of the appointment of judges generally and in the constitutional court in particular. And we should actually be having a more frequent conversation on it. 
Um, but directly to your question, um, look, this is a legacy, the way that the number of judges who are, being, who are leaving the Constitutional Court and new one coming on, it's a legacy of, I think, the 1994 process that the Constitutional Court was a completely new court where President Mandela had to re- literally pick uh, justices um, from, from different parts of the legal profession, and they, they had 15-year term limits, which all expired in, in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. So, so since then, we've, we, we, the, 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 about four judges leave at one time. Um, and, and so we will have that, that issue even going forward unless uh, the term limits are adjusted or um, the, the number of judges like, stagger themselves in terms of, for example, the way that Justice Foneman retired in 2020 already. Yeah. The other justices could choose also to stagger their retirement and not just leave it at any one time. So that would help, but it, it is a legacy issue. But Megazeli, I think one of the other problems is that just because a justice has decided to retire doesn't mean that the JSE has the presence of mind to then say, well, justice Cameron, for example, has notified us that he's leaving in three months' time, so therefore let us initiate the process. It seems to be very reactive because even now when we saw the list of candidates that are being interviewed, there was this debate on Twitter on whether they're interviewing for one vacancy or two vacancies because we do know that um, last year, by the time they initially put out the advert, there was only one vacancy. Now there's two, but it sounds like they're only interviewing for one vacancy and somebody has to ask the question of, well, why on earth would you wait for six months knowing already that there's a vacancy in order for you to then say, oh, now we must do it. Particularly, and I think it's important for you to reflect on the fact that should we only fill one vacancy now and we're looking at the October process or even next April process when there's four justices, it does constitutionally mean that you need six credible candidates to succeed in the process. And that means that you need a lot more people to actually put their hands up. Yeah, absolutely. The, the JFC also needs to shoulder some of the blame when it comes to those kinds of issues in that you, you, they have left vacancies for quite a number of time. And um, the Chief Justice has said the reason that he he leaves those vacancies open is so that he creates a pool of candidates from from, uh, from which to appoint. But um, that that is not a workable solution, as you, as you correctly point out, in that the now you will have to having to fill five vacancies instead of having filled uh, Justice Cameron's vacancy a while ago and Justice Foreman's um, um, vacancy last year already. So we think going forward, the JSC should take a more should take a more proactive um, step in filling the vacancies. Again, going back to the 2009 process, the JSC at the time didn't wait until. All, of, all four of those justices retired. Before they retired, the JSC had already sat and already interviewed. So there were candidates lined up to just fill those vacancies as soon as they arose. And so in, even in this year, particularly considering that there were no judicial appointments that happened last year, the JSC should have a special sitting, if, not, if in July or uh, some other time before October, to ensure that they fill the candidates I mean, the vacancies before they arrive at the end of the year. Uh, that is a much more... Um, smoother process of dealing with things rather than to leave vacancies open. Lawson, the last question to you. I mean, there is a Deputy Chief Justice of the country. Is it a foregone conclusion that he'll be the person that the President looks to first before uh, putting their name to the JC and say, hey, convince me why this person shouldn't be given the natural elevation to the top job? No, I don't think that there's a, there's any sort of tradition of that, of that kind that uh, suggests that the Deputy Chief Justice will necessarily take over. Uh, obviously, that person uh, is is someone that would have to be considered, given the role that they have played as uh, the deputy chief justice 
um, acting in the absence of the Chief Justice playing a critical role in terms of the disciplinary processes that are under the uh, JSD as chair of the Judicial Conduct Committee, as you pointed out earlier. So, uh, you know, that, that that's obviously a candidate that would have to be considered. There are, you know, uh, probably the president would look at other members, current members of the Constitutional Court. He would look at, uh, you know, uh, judges that are serving on the Supreme Court and perhaps even judges who are serving in the, uh, in the, in the, in the High Judge Court. Judge presidents, maybe. Uh, uh, judge presidents primarily because of the administrative responsibilities that we've spoken about earlier in this conversation, uh, you know, that are a critical component of the uh, discharge of the functions of the uh, Chief Justice. So uh, the president would have to look, uh, you know, fairly widely and, you know, can't just look at the Chief Justice, a uh, deputy. Uh, but as I say, that would have to be one of the candidates you would consider. But it, it, it's not an automatic assumption that the deputy will succeed the uh, Chief Justice. All right. As we saw in 2009, the president of that day decided not to appoint the then Deputy Chief Justice uh, Dehang Moseneke and went for another candidate altogether. It was relatively new at the bench, so there's absolutely no guarantee that even any of the remaining six constitutional court judges will still be in their positions after the 1st of November will be considered by the president. It's a matter we'll be following closely. But Lawson and Megazeli, thank you very much for joining me. Definitely calling you back in April after the first round of Jesse interviews for this year. Afropolitans, it's been the law report presented by Kasi Tolan, behalf of Michael Motoring Bill. Next week, same time. Thank you. Rewinding, Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za for more.